BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. Another world. Another time. In the age of wonder. There was once a dream. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper. And it would vanish. A battle between good and evil. You don't know the power of the dark side. Where shall I find a new adversary so close to my own level? Try the local sewer. You know of the rebellion against the Empire? The Avengers, Earth's mightiest heroes. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. One of these days, I'm going to have a stick of my own. I'm Groot. Welcome to the Neverland Podcast. The podcast for lovers of Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Please welcome your host, Jeremy. I thought he'd be taller. Yeah, I can fly. All it takes is faith. Trust. Well, if it isn't the Star-Spangled Man with a plan, what is your plan today? Up to Neverland! Hey, welcome to the Neverland Podcast, episode 119. I, of course, am your pan, the Spider-Pan of Neverland, Jeremy, and I will be happy to escort you here to Neverland as soon as you take a pixie out of your pocket, sprinkle some of that pixie dust around, and grab your happiest thought. And if you haven't gotten a happy thought, I have one to share with you as we dive straight into the Neverland trailer park this week, because there was a big trailer with a big reveal, and it was awesome. At least I was very excited about it, and I think a lot of other people too. It's been the talk of everything this week, and we will talk talk about it of course also keeping with the marvel theme of things there was a panel I, I i have so much audio i have not yet shared with you from the kansas city comic-con of 2015 i just realized oh my goodness i've been sitting on this audio and i have yet to share it and uh to keep with today's marvel theme i have some of the writers from marvel's secret wars yes like the original run and i think they even had something to do with the the newer secret wars uh, but they had a panel to talk about it and this was jim shooter mike zek and john Beatty, uh three people who worked at marvel on the original secret wars and they of course were here to have a panel now they're the most not the most exciting speakers because they're comic book artists and writers so they're not necessarily speakers and i have had to try to tweak the sound to kind of boost it but uh, they talked a little bit about their experience and took a few question and answers and i think you'll find a very interesting lots of great information they're not not, like i said not exciting to listen to but lots of great information Uh, but let's go ahead and just dive right in with a visit to the neverland trailer park mama another gator got in the house another gator give me that sugar come here get him get that gator
the Neverland Trailer Park. This job, we try to save as many people as we can. Sometimes that doesn't mean everybody. But you don't give up. New York, Washington, D.C., Sokovia. Okay, that's enough. Captain, people are afraid. That's why I'm here. We need to be put in check. Whatever form that takes, I'm game. I'm sorry, Tony. If I see a situation pointed south, I can't ignore it. Sometimes I wish I could. Sometimes I want to punch you in your perfect teeth. I know we're not perfect. But the safest hands are still our own. Alrighty. So this was, of course, the big news this week. Captain America Civil War. We have another trailer. And it's probably the last trailer we're going to get until the movie opens May 6th. And in case we weren't excited enough, this movie really takes it up a notch to get a little bit more into the tensions and a little bit more of the story other than, you know, dealing with the the Winter Soldier. But we get a look at some of the destruction that has happened. And, uh, you know, John Boyega of Star Wars, Still Force Awakens fame, did mention in a tweet, uh, this was kind of cool that he's tweeting about this, but he says, well, it's the villains that really caused the destruction, so why do the heroes get blamed? And that's a very interesting question. And I'm sure it'll be addressed in the movie, because yeah, it's, if the villains wouldn't be doing their thing, then the heroes wouldn't have to come out to try to stop it. But, uh, you know, so I don't know if they really, hit on the the full angle because in the Civil War storyline in the comics, it was heroes who weren't really doing very good at what they were doing and a villain called Nitro, a mutant, which they can't use because they can't use mutant in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because Fox is not willing to play along. But a mutant named Nitro detonated near a school and, and killed a bunch of people and even killed some of the heroes that were actually filming a reality show. Uh, and so, of course, they weren't really 
on their A game. We'll just say that. And they, it was a huge failure. And that's what launched a lot of the, uh, the American citizenry to call for the registration act because they wanted the heroes to be more properly trained. They wanted to do what their names were. They wanted them to be officially authorized, you know, and legal. And it looks like they're kind of going that angle. But yeah, as John Boyega has rightly said, a lot of the destruction that they're showing in this was the cause of some villains, you know, aliens invaded and Ultron's robots and stuff like that. Uh, but I can understand people panicking and wanting someone to be able to blame and maybe blaming heroes. And, uh, and I'm sure the Winter Soldier factors into this. So that seems to be where it's going from. And of course, Tony Stark takes the same stance he does in the comics of like, you know, I, I, I they have a point in whatever way that they want to hold us accountable. I'm okay with that. I, I think we need to be held accountable. And Cap sees this a violation of his liberty, apparently, uh, because that's kind of what Captain America stands for. You know, he's, he stands for liberty. And if he thinks something is blocking liberty and having a bit more government control on him would be kind of a way, you know, stepping on his liberty. So I could definitely see his point of view. Each one, I think, is going to – I think they're going to give respect to both perspectives, which is what the comics really did. They gave you a respect and so you understood where everyone was coming from. And what becomes problematic is a, a really great scene I love that they show in the trailer – and I think this might be the Triskelion, but it's this underwater like prison that comes out of the water, and you see some of the inside as Tony Stark is kind of looking it over, and he has this look on his face like, wow, this is what it's going to come to. And you see these prison cells all set up, and you know it's for the other heroes who don't, do not want to comply with the uh, Registration Act. And so, of course, that's what leads to the the tension and the, the infighting and... Wow, it, lo- it looks like it's going to be pretty intense and very emotional um, because, you know, Tony and, and Steve Rogers have been friends. And you see this moment where he just wham and just hits him. And that was the beginning of the fight. And then, of course, that final moment, the part that we've all been waiting for. Underoos. And then here comes something blur that comes over that webs cap shield away from him and lands perfect landing and superhero landing, if you will. And it's Spider-Man with a slightly, you know, modified suit. Now, there's, I, I've seen some cosplayers pretty upset about the costume. Part of me wonders if it's not because they've worked so hard on creating costumes based on previous films where they have these big lenses and they've done some, oh my goodness, uh, there's a group called the Spider Society on Facebook. A lot of Spider-Man cosplayers that, you know, I've not done any cosplay myself, but I really like their costumes and they put so much work and the effort in these lenses and I wonder if some of them are just upset that this didn't have lenses. This had a different sort of eyes and in case you didn't see it in the trailer, go back and watch it again. But Spider-Man is actually able to narrow his eyes. He can actually move, which kind of fits more with the animated versions and kind of with the comic. Because depending upon who your comic artist is, they want to put some expressions on Spider-Man's face. And they frequently will have the eyes bigger at one point or smaller, you know, to try to get some emotion off of that mask. And it's really nice to see that respected. And the eyes are actually fairly small on this mask, kind of vintage traditional style. And even the look, I mean, it's not a very textured look. It's very, very traditional on the way it is, but there are some modifications. Uh, the arms have kind of a, a angled gap kind of thing on some of the arms. Uh, the belt line, he has kind of a black belt line. I've heard some people say that they can see where he's keeping his web cartridges on the belt. I have not been able to spot that, so I don't know if that is true. Although that would be pretty accurate, Spider-Man does have a belt where he keeps his web cartridges, but it's usually underneath his shirt. 
So maybe there is a belt. Maybe that's what this black line we're seeing. But overall, I mean, there's some definite differences to the costume. It's very traditional. Uh, and it also looks like something a 15-year-old kid could have made. So I'm actually pretty excited about this. I like the costume. And, you know, if it's not entirely perfect, uh, we have seen that Sony from The Amazing Spider-Man and The Amazing Spider-Man 2, they do listen. If we If there's things about a costume we don't like, they will try to go even more, you know, traditional with it. So if it doesn't go over necessarily well and they get a lot of complaints, they might, when they make a solo movie for 2017, go with a more traditional costume with this same idea of it looking more like uh, kind of tights. Um, and I was talking today uh, with, a, with a friend of mine in church that he thinks the, uh, the red, it, it looks almost more brown, and I think that's more attributed to, you know, they seem to want to darken in colors these days and not have everybody wearing bright colors. So I think they've kind of gone that route a little bit. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. You know, when we get to the movie and we get to see a lot more of the costume, I'm sure we'll find out. Uh, Tom Holland's voice, not the best Spider-Man voice I've ever heard. He does sound like a kid, but I think that's part of it is it's maybe almost too much like a kid. Uh, but then again, you know, as he gets older, the character gets older, maybe his voice will change. Uh, there are definitely some voices I really have liked for Spider-Man. I mean, Christopher Daniel Barnes from the 90s, his voice sounded great. Uh, I think Tobey Maguire, his, you know, had a pretty good voice uh, there. I don't know that he was necessarily sounds what a Spider-Man should sound like. Um, I, like I said, I'm really, you know, Christopher Daniel Barnes, I think, had it perfect. And if they had ever gotten around to it and my, um, Michael J. Fox, if I can get his name out, Michael J. Fox, I think, would have been a great Spider-Man. I love his tone of voice, and I think he would have been a great Spider-Man. And I loved uh, Neil Patrick Harris's portrayal of Spider-Man in a short-lived computer-animated MTV series. I mean, so there's been some good voices for Spider-Man. It's it's really you, – you've got to get that certain level of kind of a youth and where it's – you know. It's got to sound manly, but yet, you know, uh, not very deep. Kind of like my voice. I don't have a very deep voice. You wouldn't think that I'm pushing 40. I, I don't sound like it, I know. Uh, so it's, you have to have that, that certain quality of voice. Now, there was a, a 60s television series of Spider-Man where they went with Peter Parker up here, and then I am Spider-Man. They tried to go with this deep voice thing. And I do like the idea of trying to have Spider-Man and Peter Parker's voice difference, like he tries to do something to make himself sound different. Uh, but trying to go super deep just doesn't seem to fit with the character to me. Um, but so, but yeah, Tom Holland's voice, he gets, gets two lines. Hey everyone, you know, two, two words, not two lines. Hey everyone. And, you know, it's, it's not bad. It's it's not the greatest voice I've heard for Spider-Man, but I'm still very excited. I'm, I'm I actually like the costume. Yes, it's a little different, but I really like that the effort they've put in to make it very traditional, uh, and in some ways, at least in the mask, and not go for hyper texture because you know we've we've gotten used to a very textured web design, and now the web design is just kind of like a drawn on, and it looks a little bit more like the comic. So I like it. Uh, I know not everybody is liking it, but I'm I, if I wasn't excited for this movie before, I am very excited now that we've finally gotten our first peek at Spider-Man, and I am very excited to see what his role will be. But now, that comic panel that I promised I was going to share with you, let's just get right to it. And like I said, this was from back in August of 2015, and I think they talk a little bit. It's been a while uh, since I was in, in the panel, but I think they did talk a little bit about the newer Secret Wars, and uh, they did have to keep some secrets for what was coming. Uh, the Secret Wars, I think, by now have concluded. I have not read much on this anymore. I mainly am just reading... The Star Wars comics, I've, you know, I'm really behind on those, but I also did this week pick up the Haunted Mansion comic, did come out this week, and I have read it, and uh, I would like to discuss it a bit more with Eric here for you, but 
All I can say is, in case you haven't picked it up, go and get it. It is great. It pays great tribute to all the different variety of stories that go on in the mansion, uh, even on the front page. Uh, definitely a good read. Definitely worth buying. There's some variant covers. Track down whichever ones you want. There's a really fun variant cover where it had a uh, look like there was a toy of Constance, and that was the cover. Uh, I didn't get that one. I've got more of a traditional-looking cover where it has this really cool painting of the Haunted Mansion, making it looking kind of tall and foreboding. I kind of hope by the end of the series we get to see a little bit of the the Orlando version of the Haunted Mansion because I really do like that design. But this, of course, this comic has dealt with the classic Disneyland version, the New Orleans sort of design, and the story takes place there. But definitely go pick up this comic this week. But now let's go ahead and get to that panel that I told you all about here earlier. Enjoy. To Disney and beyond. Uh, my name is Jerry, and I'm with the Worst Comic Podcast ever. With me is one of my partners, Colin, and in the back, my other partner, John. Uh, we're based here in Kansas City. We are lifelong friends. Uh, I'm going to date myself, we'll date all of ourselves throughout this podcast, but uh, we all met in seventh grade. I think I had John in four out of the seven hours, and I had Colin in five of the seven seven hours, and once you realize that they read comics too, you just hang out with them the whole time. So, um, now, one of the things I remember, again, 30 years, so we've known each other since 1982. Throughout 1983, if you were reading Marvel Comics at that time, uh, you started getting hints and teases about this project coming up called Secret Wars, and for... 12-year-old Jerry and Colin John, we just thought that, that was the greatest event of all time. And, uh, it's a pretty magical moment, and it's a thrill for us to be here to introduce you guys. Let's give a warm Kansas City welcome to Jim Shooter, Mike Sack, and John Bailey. Um, I think with any of these conversations, let's start with the genesis. Uh, Basically, this whole thing came about because of the toy line, is that correct? Well, uh, Tanner Toys decided they wanted to do a uh, line of superheroes and they licensed the DC superheroes. And uh, Mattel didn't want to be the only big toy company that didn't have a line of superheroes, and they came to us. And in those days, I mean, everybody knew who Superman and Wonder Woman were, but nobody knew Iron Man was. And uh, so, they were interested in the license because they wanted superheroes. But they, they, uh, they wanted us to do something event to get publicity. And uh, I said, all right, fine. So I'm sitting in this room with executives and licensing people, and they'll just kind of look at me, well, you know. Fortunately, uh, I, I used to read the fan mail all the time. We used to get tons of fan mail, hundreds and hundreds of letters on the X-Men. But uh, um, so every day in the fan mail, I mean, I, I couldn't read it all. I, 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 had, I had some interns who uh, would go through it and pick out letters for me to read. But uh, every day, at least a dozen people suggested, you know, doing a giant story with all the all the main heroes and all the main villains in it. And so when everybody in the room looked at me and said, "Well," I said. I know. <laughs> so, so anyway, you know, that's how it got started. And we're working with Mattel, and they weren't, uh, 
They were too tough to work with. I mean, they, they, they made us do a few things like uh, they wanted a doctor to be more technological. Well, I could work that. You know, they wanted, uh, they, they said you look too mean. They, they, they wanted uh, headquarters and, you know, vehicles. Well, I can do that. So, anyway, we, we worked it out. We found a way to do it. And, uh, I, like I said, I don't think they severely compromised it. I can't remember what the original title was. Battle World or something. But uh, they, they did focus group. And they found out that the kids responded to secret and wars. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, that works. And it can only go in one order. So. <laughs> anyway, and I'm assuming that the toy line kind of gave you a list of the core characters that they want figures of. Did you round out the rest of the characters to use in the book? Or? Basically, we had a series of things with them, and I told them as much as they told me, so I don't know. Uh, you know, we actually flew to LA and spent time out there. Um, it's not how LA is also good doing it. But anyway, I mean, we spent time with these people, and uh, uh, they were reasonably cooperative. And, and you know, we we, we worked it out. The two female characters that came from you, not that were. Yeah, yeah, we created the characters. Yeah, because uh, I don't know, I like them, and uh, I had yeah. Among his achievements was the uh, black spider man costume. We also did a spider woman costume, which is kind of cool. So, anyway, you know, I had, I, I had uh, great uh, great troops uh, with me, and, and, and uh, so we, uh, we got Derek. <laughs> now, one of the other challenges that people may or may not be aware of, you were coordinating that into the events of the Marvel Universe at that time. It was it was going to become part of the ongoing storyline of everything. So many of the other toy tie-in comics were standalones where they didn't they didn't impact their universe. Ignored kind of throwaway stories and nothing else. So, but you you were with the core titles like Amazing Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, X-Men. You saw the points where they took off the battle world and they came back in. So you were having to coordinate that with a lot of different other creators. Yeah, you guys know the term herding cats. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I have all these editors and artists and writers, and they're all just wonderfully invested in what they do and care desperately about it. So, <clears throat> trying to get them to, like, cooperate with this continuity tsunami that we were doing. Uh, you know, but I'm, I'm very large and terrified. And, uh, <laughs> So, uh, I just like we're not so in the church. Yeah, I'm, I was the boss. So, uh, so anyway, I finally convinced everybody that no matter what's going on with your character, you get them to Central Park in December, and then you can pick them up at Central Park in January. <laughs> 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 they're going to be able to, they're going to be a little different. You have to deal with some things. But I also talk to the writers and artists about, about things that we can do with the characters to, you know, just force it on them. We'll talk to you about, like Burn, for instance, wanted to thing to stay on that and stuff like that. You know, whatever. Okay, that sounds good. That sounds good. But uh, yeah, so but we got them all to, to cooperate that much, and then a lot of people, when the characters came back with their Spider-Man with a new costume, um, you know, uh, other characters to change it slightly or at least moved by the experience, uh, a lot of them picked up on it and, and ran with it. I mean, 
aspiring to costume things is still a problem. Mike, were you involved from the very start? Um, not in not in the sense of the planning with toy companies or anything like that. It was all done inside the offices. I was still out in Connecticut. John the same. He was even further away. Um, once, once I well, John and I were kind of approached together to, to do the book, and once we made the decision that, that we would do it, then uh, you know, my I guess my earliest things, my my first task really was to start designing the the, the changes, the the black costume, the Spider Woman, the the vehicle, you know, all the things that you just described that the other uh, writers and artists needed to have uh, that same month that was coming out so, so that they would know uh, what these characters and vehicles would look like. So uh, that was it. That and doing the first cover, which would be, uh, which we knew would be a uh, promotional poster uh, for the stores and as well as a cover. So uh, a lot of people always ask, well, what about the, you know, why aren't these characters on the cover if, if they've seen you know, the actual poster or something? But because there wasn't as much text on the promotional poster, so I filled that up, and knowing that they probably delete the top couple characters for the comic itself, for the logo. And then just on the penciling. Have you and John worked together before this? Yeah, a lot. Uh, I, I know John since he was a teenager and sending me uh, fan mail samples. And, uh, we we started hanging out. He would come up to uh, Connecticut to stay with me. We'd work on the inking. And, uh, so uh, John's first professional inks were over me on the Master Kung Fu cover. And, uh, he kind of turned out okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Spider-Man costume has turned into. 
into and how it's kind of taken a life of its own. And, you know, as a professional and a creator, when you guys started talking about creating, because at the time, right, there wasn't, a, there weren't uniform changes. Everyone had a core look and it, it existed for decades. And this was tied to uh, changing so that Mattel could sell different variations of these characters. And um, I'm just wondering, just when you guys sat down and started talking about the suit and everything, like, were there talks between you, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that we're about to change this iconic character's costume? Uh, I think I, I need to answer this. First of all, what's all I left here? There was no, no input whatsoever. Uh, the, the thing is, uh, like a year before, a uh, a fan, one of your writers, sent me a plot, and in this plot, uh, uh, Reed Richards invents a uh, super high-tech black costume for Spider, because you know, we'd prowl around our roofs at night, wouldn't you wear black, right? And, and the costume that Reed Richards designed for him had the building web shooters in it. And so, I, I mean, I like the story stuff, but uh, <laughs> um, but I like the idea. That's, a, that's cool, you know. I don't want to do with it, but. So I put it in the drawer, and we paid him some money for it. And uh, we actually did actually eventually give him a tryout as a writer, pay him some more money. He, he just couldn't cut it. But uh, not ready for crime. But anyway, so a year later, all right, doing Secret Wars. They're going to go away or battle world. I don't want them all to come back unmoved by the experience. I want something, you know. And so I got, hey, this is the idea that I bought in, in the drawer. So, uh, you know, and we talked about it. And uh, he came up with the costume, which is brilliant. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I was, so I went and told the people upstairs, I told the PR people, I said, we're going to change Spider-Man's costume. I said, maybe we should do like a press release. And then the PR lady said, no one will care. <laughs> and so everybody else just kind of ignored me. And um, so the day that uh, that first Spider-Man book came out with the costume he designed, my phone's ringing off the hook. I got the Daily News, I got the New York Times, I got the, the Post, I got all the wire services. You know, yeah, no one's interested. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, like, I went and told the PR lady, and all of a sudden they're scrambling like crazy trying to take care of all this. But the thing is, it was just it was just an idea about how to make sure that this story had real changes, real impact on the characters. Just, they all just come back and say, who cares? You know, so anyway, that, that's that's how that came about. My teller had nothing to do with it. The licensing people called me up and started screaming at me. They said, "Don't you realize we have this blue and red costume license all over the world, and you change it?" And, and I said, "Yeah, well." <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, to their amazement and mine somewhat, what we found out is that the licensees weren't weren't mad at all. They they all wanted to license the black costume too. You know, so I think the marketing is called segmenting the brand, but, but whatever. Anyway, it turned out that they made like double the money. And in terms of the timeline, Secret Wars number one went on sale January 24th of 84. Amazing Spider Man 252, which had the debut of the black costume, went on sale the following week. And you hadn't even seen it that you had in the Secret Wars. No, no, it came like eight months later. Yeah, yeah. it came in August or so. Yeah. So it was, it was quite the shock 
when you went into the stores the next week to see that it was a, a, a homage to Amazing Fantasy 15 with uh, Spider-Man carrying the person but wearing the black costume. It's our plan worked. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Secret Wars oftentimes gets grouped in or compared with Crisis that. They were both 12-issue event series, and um, Secret Wars started a full year in advance of Crisis, but DC kind of had things in the, in the works. Did, at, were you in trying to match them with this in any way, knowing that they had that in, in the works? That, that's a facile lie, frankly. <laughs> no, they didn't have anything in the works. But, but the thing is, all the comic book guys all talk to each other. So as soon as we started working on this, and they wanted to do the same thing. Now, years before, when Jeanette Kahn first started to publish at DC, she had a part a bunch of comic book people there. And uh, so uh, she walks up to me and she says, well, you're, you're the big comics guru, you know, what should I do? I mean, this lady didn't know what inking was at the time. And I said, I said, well, if I were you, I'd just I, I end the DC universe in a spectacular fashion and start it all new the next month. Uh, it turned out that uh, uh, Jerry Conway had suggested something like that before I did. But anyway, that, that, that idea was floating around the air, you know. And uh, so when we announced Secret Wars, they will claim till their deaths that they, they, were, they were already working on it. No, come on, 12 months later? Are you kidding me? It's, so anyway, uh, no, I mean, they heard what we were doing. So they wanted to do that too. And that, oh, here's another thing. In the second Secret Wars, I did that branching thing where the storyline branched into the individual titles. Well, by that time, by the time Secret Wars 2 was announced and everybody talked about it, I think, uh, they had already done several issues of Crisis. And then suddenly they started branching. And, uh, you know, oh yeah, we thought it would hurt. Come on, you know, it's like the, the old Soviet Union. <laughs> we invented baseball. <laughs> I was just going to suggest why don't we get John moving around on the floor? Yeah, totally. So, do we ask that question? Please raise your, your hand and John will bring the mic to you so we can make sure the question is heard by everyone. I need to get in my steps here, so. You also tell stories and make things up. Although I guess you sort of already answered this question, uh, but when you're going and redesigning Spider-Man, and he did have that iconic costume for decades, uh, what kind of goes into the planning thinking, well, what if the fans don't like this? You know, what kind of fear is that like? You know, it, yeah, it, to answer that first question, too, we, we, when this came about, and Jim just said Spider-Man's going to come back in a new costume, we weren't talking about it like it was this gigantic event uh, changing the Marvel Universe in any way. I, my thinking was, and probably yours too, that he wear the black costume for a while, go back to the red and blue, and it'd just be forgotten about, probably. You know, I, I felt no pressure designing the costume. Uh, you know, so I, I didn't, that was my feeling. I didn't see it as a big event. I just decided, okay, let me do a black costume. <laughs> Design these white elements, and uh, and that was that. You know, I never for a minute thought that that design would still be around thirty years later. Not, not for a second. Oh, thanks. You know, 
one of the things about the, the Spider-Man costume, especially, there were a lot of the original, there's a lot of design elements. The, the, there was a lot of lines around. Was a lot, was it, I mean, I know this wasn't the reason to do it, but was it easier to draw the black costume? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people think that. I just wanted to save yeah. some time. Get rid of all that webbing, and it's going to be a lot easier to do. <laughs> I suppose, in a sense, it is. Not, uh, and that's the biggest difference. I mean, Spider-Man's original costume, even though you say red and blue, you know, Ditko basically designed a black and red costume and just had those blue highlights on it. Uh, and this was basically the same, just without the, the red and all, and all the webbing on it. So, yeah, I guess, but slightly easier, uh, less time-consuming. The lines are there, you just have to look for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, according to Sam Raimi, yeah. yeah black <laughs> That's easy for the pencil. All you gotta do is put an X there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> guys, thank you so thank you guys so much for creating a story that has lasted 30 years and is one of the most important stories, in my opinion, in the Marvel universe. My question for you guys is if you had the opportunity to make a third chapter. What would you do with and revisit the Secret Wars universe? What characters would you use? What plot would you use? And how would that impact today's Marvel, today's comic book industry? Well, that's kind of being done this year. <laughs> the third chapter is this year, and we have nothing to do with it. You guys would be better at it than what they're doing. <laughs> we, would, we would have given it our best effort. Yeah, and, and I'm not about speaking for the other two, but I've been on the road most of the summer and even through now. I haven't read uh, the Secret Wars yet, the, the current one. I just haven't had time. Yeah. All right, other questions? Somebody, oh, sorry. When uh, Mattel started adding more figures to the line, did they come to you and ask to put them into the comic too, or was, that, was the series already over? Like You're talking about the things that took place in those first 12 issues? Well, I was talking about the figures that Mattel added to the they toy Oh, oh way well, the figures, and then they started putting out more figures. <laughs> they, were, they were pretty polite uh, at first, and then they just kind of did what they wanted. I'll ask them real quick about, uh, you know, at the beginning of Secret Wars, we've got everybody split up into two camps. You know, heroes and the, and, the, and the villains, and there was an interesting dynamic there in terms of, you know, Magneto, who a lot of the people in the hero camp did not see as belonging in the hero camp. Uh, was that something that was sort of, well, he's with the X-Men now, we'll put him there, or is it more, let's generate some, some dynamic action within the team by having somebody there? That, uh, I mean, Chris had already started that, that you know, conflict in, in, in the X-Men. And I had a couple long talks with him about it, you know, just because I wanted to get it right. I didn't want to scroll what he was doing. And, uh, and he basically, you know, thought I, 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 I did it right. The only thing he hated was when Spider-Man was fighting the X-Men. And, you know, the X-Men failed to defeat him instantly. <laughs> and I said, they won. You know, he's talking about it. Anyway, I'm the editor-in-chief, and he's stronger if I say so. <laughs> but anyway, you know. It, it, it was, uh, 
I was just trying to, like, I did this with every book. I read what was going on. Obviously, I read every, read every book. I had to sign, sign the book out. So uh, I read everything. So I was like, you know, trying to work with whatever was going on in each title. And it was easier with the X-Men because he had some really juicy stuff going on. You know, but Spider-Man everything with that too. Um, so, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you, you know what, it takes so much more work that most people won't do it. You know? Hi. Uh, I don't know if you know what's going on, but I'm sure you know, but there's the Deadpool Secret Wars going on right now, and it's kind of like a re-envisioning of what happened there with Deadpool in there. Did they, like, talk to you about that, or, like, what was that process like? Did they just throw it in there, like, panic in this back? Yeah, as if, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah, we had a conference call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, not at all. We all hear it. Yeah. Uh, all right, along that lines, there's there's been discussion online about it. They've taken the iconic cover to issue one, and to meet the needs of the current fans and Marvel, they've done some Photoshop work where they've taken out the Fantastic Four characters, yeah. inserted characters done by completely different artists and different angles that don't quite match up. Yeah. Is, is that something that gets you upset, or was that just a paid job that you did years ago and you cashed that check? <laughs> uh, for one thing, I'm used to that cover being redone, 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 homage, homage. That one, Secret Wars, a number of other covers that I've done over the years, I've just seen done over and over and over again by different artists. But yeah, this thing you're talking about now, I mean, I, I no reason to get upset about it. I just don't understand why they want to do reprints of them now, if that's what they have to do, really just take half the characters out of those uh, covers now. And on the Secret Wars one, you're right, they, re they replaced some of the characters, and it's still silly, that, but Secret Wars 8, they just took, they, they left the flame trail of the torch, and they just took the figure out, and it's, it's just like, it's terrible. <laughs> they, you know, I, why would they want to do that and sell the share? It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, I understand that they can't do it if Fox has the rights now and they can't use the characters in that media, but then just print something else. Right. Don't do that foolishness. Anybody else? I'll, I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> um, Secret Wars basically ushered in the whole yearly event. Do you regret that? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it, it did more harm than good in some ways. I mean, I think that uh, you know uh, there was Super Wars. It was it did well. The crisis did, did pretty well. Uh, and then everyone every year was doing them, and a lot of them were just you know it, it, it was meaningless, not common. They'd all come home and say you know it's. So I think it, I think what happened is that. Uh, I don't regret doing what you did. I mean, but I think what happened is that, then, you know, a lot of these people, all they want to do is derivative stuff. You know, create something. But, uh, so, when, anyway, when I was at Valiant, we did, uh, we did uh, crossovers uh, different ways. I mean, like, uh, I had to take place in the real books, you know, as opposed to in a special series. Um, 
to me to do it some other way too. I don't. But anyway, the point is, the point is that, that you know, if you're going to do it, don't do the same thing. Don't you know, come up with something. Think about it. Come up with an idea. You know, and then don't leave the torches flame trail on the car. Anyway, yeah, I think that you know, it ended up doing more harm than good. I think all these people became dependent on these crossovers, and I think, I think after a while, readers like me, because we're all fans, okay, uh, you get almost offended. I mean, you, you, it, it becomes boring. You feel like you're being exploited or something. Like, like oh, look, I got to buy this because it has all these characters in it, and then it gets disappointing. And not to, I mean, it's all part of the corporate synergy now, you know. Yes, you know, back then Marvel was owned by a corporation and all that, but now that they're owned by Disney, Disney has been, has a long history of making money out of things that were done years ago. But that's their whole business model is, you know, getting you to buy something over and over again. I think that's what they're doing with Elon Musk. Do you have another question about her? Oh, well, I was just going to ask about, you know, like you said, you guys are fans, uh, and I know I have sort of favorite artists and writers that, that have inspired me uh, over the years. Do you guys have particular artists writers that you were really big fans of that got you interested in, in comics as a medium? But it's hard for me to pick like one specific person. Uh, I go back, you know, my fan days go back before the Marvel age, so it's DC Comics for me, maybe some Charlton rolled in there as well. So my first influences were the Kurt Swan, Gil Kane, Carmine Infantino, even uh, Joe Kubert on, on the war books. Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving someone out as well, but so many people influenced me. And then the, the Marvel wave started and I was getting into Ditko and Kirby and the rest of those guys. And I was hooked forever, obviously, when when uh, that came around, but, but all through there, everybody that came in and raised the bar, whether it be Steranko or Neil Adams or, or who have you, well, even, I should be about John Buscema, you know, when, when he hit his, I mean, I couldn't believe his stuff, his Silver Surfer and stuff, that was, I was just going crazy over that stuff, but it's just, you know, there's easily a hundred guys, you know, I'm influenced by probably. How are you, John? Uh, I kind of, um, my influences early were uh, Charles Schultz and, and Kenny. I was uh, into strips and then uh, get down the street, had a box of superhero comics and sold me for like 20 bucks. And I went through those and kind of got interested in them. And then I discovered Mike's Export uh, through a used bookstore. And through Robert Rockets, the last comic collector. That's where I initially, I wrote a fan letter know, saying something about Mike's work, little did I know, you know, that the guy that published the book forwarded it to Mike, and then I got a letter back from Mike. So my influences kind of go from, they, they started out as current, and then as I grew as an artist and anchor, I kind of went back to the people in the past and studied their work, so, you know, um, it was kind of a process of what I liked in the present and then as I learned from them, I learned where they learned from originally and backtracked. So that's kind of the way it went. And how cool was it opening that letter oh, and I, seeing that it was for Mike's act? The interesting thing is that, you know, I looked at the return and I 
this one. Yeah, and notice he sent a letter, not an email. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I actually, you know, I asked my mom, I said, hey, can I see if I can call this guy in there? And she's like, well, 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so when I first called, though, I actually got a hold of Mike's father. And I talked to him for about five minutes. And he goes, oh, you're talking about my son. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess so. So I got on the phone, we had a short conversation, and we communicated with uh, letters. And I would go down to Miami Convention. Jim would always, uh, they were usually in April, I think. And uh, Mike would, uh, you know, introduce me to Jim, and I would show Jim my samples. And was, I remember the year um, Jim said, hey, get up to New York, I'll give you a shot, and that's when Mike was up in Connecticut, and Mike said, you want to come up, we'll go in, see what happens. Here I am. <laughs> Very cool story of that personal connection. Yeah. Jim, how about you from, from a writing perspective? Well, you know, all the usual suspects, you know, Shakespeare, Mark Twain, you know, Davy Salinger. But um, it's, it's funny, I mean, like, if I'm, like, writing a description, I'll go read some Steinbeck. <laughs> writing dialogue or ways of sound uh, just to get warmed up, you know. But in comics, obviously, you know, Stan, you know, uh, and uh, who else? Although I didn't appreciate them at the time as much. Uh, some of those old DC writers, like Gardner Fox and uh, uh, Otto Binder and Camel, yes. Edmund, Edmund Hale. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I mean, those those guys weren't here. You know, it's you know, people don't talk like that. You know, this wouldn't happen. Uh, but now I go back and I read some of those stories, and they're impeccably structured. And there's there's uh, a lot of emotional content, and it's it's not that kind of in your face like Stan was doing, but. Uh, but I mean, like, uh, I sort of retroactively have been influenced by them. And, uh, and there's, there's some good, good guys out there today. I mean, I, I recommend Mark Wade, you know. Uh, and there's a few others who I'm not as familiar with the guys. I can read, read something, so that's good. And then I can't remember, remember the guy's name. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. In, the, in the 12 issues Secret Force series, and this goes out to each of you, is there a, a moment, a page, a scene, a particular issue that stands out as this is someone like us work on? What 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 part of this are you most fond about? For me, uh, some of the covers, I guess. Uh, doing it, I wasn't uh, I wasn't really looking at too many of them. It's the best work I've ever done because it all. Every issue was behind schedule to some extent, and every issue was rushed to, to some extent. Uh, the uh, the guy here to my right who actually achieved bringing Marvel books back on schedule was for some reason late on plugs. Don't figure that out. But we was you know, being editor chief at the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was a little busy. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned plots that we, having read some 
this, this thinks about the structure of comics and the way that writers communicate to artists. And one of the things I read a lot is that the writer doesn't write for the audience, the writer writes for the artist, in a sense that they're trying to convey for the artist what to what to show. Um, was the how was your stuff scripted out? Was it was it a very scripted? We were on some writers who every panel has a two page description of what that panel's like, and other people it's a little looser. What was that? What was that communication like for you guys? Uh, well, you know, there's, there's Marvel style and then there's DC stuff. There, there's the plot that you give to the artist, and then he becomes the cinematographer. And then there's the uh, you know the, the full script style where, where you write two pages of description. And, and you also tell them what the dialogue is, and it's all done. I mean, you just sit back, and the guy's supposed to draw what he said. But uh, uh, we we did uh, we did a, a plot script, except that I did some little thumbnail drawings, you know, just to because some of the stuff was it would take days to explain. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but I mean that's that's how we did it. I think. You know, if, if you got a really good artist, if you're Stan Lee, you got Jack Kirby, what's he good doing? Let him, let him go, man. Let him run. If you, you know, on the other hand, if you got some new kid who, who you know doesn't understand the basics of cinematography, of storytelling, you're gonna have to, you know, hold their hands. You know. Anyway, so when well, you talk about those thumbnail sketches, I guess part of that. Is part of that also related to the number of characters? I mean, if you're trying to describe how 12 people are going to stand in words, it's a lot more than it does maybe to, to do a sketch of it. Well, you know, it's like it's, you got Spider-Man fighting the X-Men. How many X-Men are there? I don't know. And you, so you got you have you have to have you can do the old kung fu thing and have them come one at a time. You know, <laughs> the rest are just waiting. And be <laughs> or you can you can try to be real about it. You can you can give what they call the hard shot of the room. And you see where everybody is and what they're doing, you know? And to describe that would take forever. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's just a little stick figure here, that's fire. You know? Yeah, I think the, the main reason for that way to start out that way is because everything was pushing deadlines and stuff. It, it really, I think it really was a shortcut for everyone, a shortcut for Jim to not have to describe everything, just do that quick little uh, sketch mm -hmm. something and shortcut for me uh, as well to, to jump from that to, to the pencils. Uh, and that's, yeah, there's a few, Jim could do that. Uh, and the other guy at uh, Marvel that I remember that could do that kind of thing was Larry Hama. He could, he could knock out just a quick, quick sketch, I mean, just in no time, faster than he could describe. The, uh, the cover idea or something, and it was, it was just easier for him to do that. The other guy I did was Archie Goodwin. Everything you wrote. Everything you wrote. But, uh, 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 what would you change about the comics industry today? <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, it's hard for me to say it's gotten better, it's gotten worse. I mean, it's it, it's really it really depends. It's it's a subjective thing for me. You know, I, I still and and it's because of my golden age, I guess. But I I still like to go back to the uh, the pre digital comics. I think uh, I don't know the you know I've I've just lost interest in and and I give you like. DC right now as an example. I'm sure there are people that think it's the hottest thing ever, but you know, when they now that they're making everyone's costume, so the, the costume itself is detailed. Everybody's like armored up or something. There, there's no simple costumes anymore. And then on top of that, they're doing that Jim Lee style cross hatching. It's just it's just noodled to death. And it, personally, it's not it's not what I'm interested in. You know, that, that just doesn't interest me. I, I, Still rather than go back and see some Kirby. I'd rather read Kirby again than go and buy that book. But that's just me personally. You know, that's how I change it. I guess I'm trying to get these people that are, you know, not not that there's a Kirby born every day, but I, I would look for those people. Try to go back to Marvel pop art days or something, which I really like. I. I remember reading the Civil War that originally came out, and while the series was excellent and great, one thing that stood out in my mind was when you dropped the mount on the hole and you held it up. Oh, what other kind of feedback did you got from fans about individual parts of the series? It's like, wow, that really got my attention. Well, I, I love taking credit for that cover. But it's, <laughs> it, uh, and it's, you'd be surprised how many people come up. You know, they think I did every single cover, every single page, but they're... Uh, Bob Layton was a big help in coming in and keeping the book on schedule. He did those couple fill-ins. He did uh, a few of the covers. And that's a Bob Layton cover. And even, you know, like many people do come up. It's either Sequel Wars 1, 8, maybe 10 with Dr. Doom. They tell me that's their favorite cover. But I do get a number of people coming up to tell me that the Hulk holding up the mountain was their favorite cover. And I just say, thanks. Thank <laughs> so, anyway, stuff happened, things went on, and it, it eventually fell apart. 
But I think that early on when I was senator, Jeanette Kahn was also beginning as publisher. And we went to lunch one time, and she said, we did this crossover once, the Superman Spider Man, Jerry Conway wrote it. Right, yes, Ross And uh, Mike is Anyway, uh, she said, why don't we do that again? I said, sure. So anyway, we talked about it, and it's, it turned into a, a series. Uh, and do one every year. You know? So I wrote the first one, Superman versus Spider Man. The second one, I think, was Batman Hulk. I don't know. And there was Teen Titans against the X Men, maybe. And then there was supposed to be the Avengers fight. By this time, things had gotten so acrimonious between Marvel and DC uh, because we were, like I said, we were dominating the market. This was a rising market. Their 18% was bigger than the 30% that they used to have. You know, because all votes were rising. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, so, so things started, uh, you know, getting on the. Uh, the whole thing fell apart, which was too bad. But I understand they're, they're going to do it again. And maybe that accounts for the cross-cover characters. Wait a minute. We've got just a couple minutes left, so maybe one more question. Right back here. What do you guys think about the currency reform? All the stuff here. Uh, I don't think any of us are aware. We just have that time to read it yet, so uh, can't comment on it. Good luck to it, but uh, I, hope, I hope it does well. Uh, you've read it, right? I, and uh, what issue? Is it, it's, a, it's an eight issue series, and which, what's the current issue? Four or five, about halfway through. Yes. Yeah, because to my knowledge, I guess they wanted they wanted to do some changes in, in the universe or something, and that seemed to be the easy, easiest and best way to do it. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to to read it. Uh, what's your uh, what's your impression of it? Uh, I, I just think it's a weird thing. Just general and some reboot, but. I'm just waiting to see how it happens. Yeah. Well, see how it affects the universe going forward, I guess, the Marvel Universe. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. We invite you back next week for more fun and adventure. Until then, remember to keep a pixie in your pocket. It's that young at heart, positive attitude that you can share with others. And remember to visit our website at NeverlandPodcast.com. There you can find links to our news page, a link to visit our shop, and much more. And please feel free to leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492. Or email us at podcast at neverlandpodcast.com. If you email us a Lost Boy or Pixie nickname with a reason why you chose that name, you can become an official Neverlander. Girls are too clever to get lost, so we are naturally magical pixies. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at NeverlandPCast. 
and like our Neverland Podcast fan page on Facebook. We also have a group on Facebook for you to join. We also appreciate your support in keeping the Neverland Podcast up and running. Visit patreon.com slash neverlandpodcast to donate to keeping the pixie dust alive. Copyright content featured on the Neverland Podcast is copyright of their respective creators and used under fair use license. All original content is copyright of Blue Band Productions. God God bless. bless!